Father God, we want to come before you again today and just recognize the beauty of the promise that we just saw. God, we pray that this morning as we, as we enter into a, a worship space in which we, we all come with different things, Lord, that you meet each of us where we are. Lord, if we come in with heartache, Lord, we pray that you meet us in that space. If we come in with sickness, we pray that you meet us there as well and heal. Lord, we think of Angela this morning as well, who has, who has spent the last couple of days uh, trying to figure out what's going on. Lord, we pray uh, as a member, a longstanding partner of this congregation, Lord, that you heal her and be with her and her family. God, we pray that whatever we walk into this door with today, Lord, that you meet us in that spot. May you encourage us where we need to be encouraged. May you convict us where we need to be convicted. May we all leave here today a little bit closer to you, a little bit deeper understanding of who you are and how deep your love is for us, just like it was for Desmond. God, as we approach your word, Lord, we pray that your spirit be here amongst us, that they aren't just words written on a page thousands of years ago, but words that are alive because your spirit is in them. Pray all these things in your name. Amen. So, <clears throat> as we get into the message this morning, it's amazing to me as, uh, how often our preaching calendar lines up with what's happening on a particular Sunday. So just a quick, brief insight, some of you know this already, how we do our preaching calendar. We have a preaching team amongst our, uh, that gets together each week, and we set a calendar out for months in advance. Uh, this year, we've been working through the book of Matthew, and so it's been coming in sequence. There's been less planning, but it's amazing as we've been going through Matthew how often the passage we hit speaks into what's going on in the world around us or in the service that we're having, and that's the true again today. See, I love that we're gonna, what we're going to talk about today falls on the week we have a baptism, that we start talking about one baptism. Uh, because we are going to continue our journey through Matthew, but it's going to speak into those things directly. So if you've been tracking with us so far, we're spending the entire year of 2022 in the book of Matthew. Um, and you may also know that we've broken down Matthew into a, 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 a sequential mini-series. So each time we have, uh, we, we go through the book in order, but then break them into little, little mini-series along the way. So we just last week wrapped up a series in which we were talking about the kingdom. Now this is a crucial concept for the entire book of Matthew, as you've heard me say over and over and over again. Hopefully you won't be able to forget it. The book of Matthew, is it, it, one of its main and primary focuses is on the kingdom of God. We say each and every week that Jesus actually begins his preaching ministry in the book of Matthew with the phrase, repent or turn, for the kingdom of heaven is all around you. And so it's the lens we've been looking at Matthew through as we go through each week. That there's this, there's this kingdom life that God desires for us. The way, there's a certain way that God wants us to live because it's the way that leads us towards flourishing. And yet many of us aren't aimed at that particular life. And so God asks us to repent, which just simply means to turn. That if you're off course, turn back towards it and experience this kingdom that's all around you. And so for the last four weeks before this one, we kind of talked about what the kingdom looked like. We talked about how the kingdom is the kind of life that leads, that is, that, that leads to a fullness and a flourishing we talked about how a kingdom life is one that also lives next to a world that's broken and busted in the parable of the wheat and the weeds, right? Where beautiful kingdom wheat grows along with weeds underneath it. We talked about how uh, each of us needs to constantly be tilling our soil as we looked at the parable of the soil so because, the, because the world is complex 
And even in the way that Jesus tells his parables, he helps us to see that there are multiple layers of what the kingdom actually looks like. And then last week, we talked about how the kingdom is something that starts small inside of us and grows into this big and overwhelming, amazing thing. In particular, I want you to hold on to that part of what we talked about last week. If you weren't here, we talked about the parable of the mustard seed or yeast, in which the kingdom is something that, that, when planted in us, begins to take over and lead us into the kind of life that God wants for us. But we also talked about the fact that we need to then allow God to plant that particular seed in us, which will matter this morning. Now, this week we start a new series, and we're calling it Up and to the Right, which is an image I think most of us understand, right? In American culture, success is often depicted on graphs as what? A line up and to the right, right? And so that's what we're talking about. We're constantly growing, getting bigger and better is the concept that we have in our minds. And so the question that we're going to ask throughout this particular mini-series is, does the kingdom work like that? Is it, when we enter into this kingdom kind of life, are we, are we, do we expect then to have it all go, continue to go up and to the right, to get a little bit bigger and a little bit better every single time? Or in other words, does following Jesus lead, lead to a life that simply continues to go up and to the right? The passage we're going to look at this morning to talk about those questions is Matthew 13. We're going to start in verse 53. So if you have a Bible or an app or want to follow along, we'll be in Matthew 13, starting at verse 53, which says this. When Jesus had finished these parables, the ones we looked at last week, the parable of the sower, the par- or, sorry, the parable of the mustard seed, the parable of the yeast, and the parable of the kingdom being like a merchant who finds a pearl or a, a valuable treasure. When he finished these parables, he moved on from there. Coming to his hometown, he began teaching the people in their synagogue, and they were amazed. Where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers, they asked? Isn't he the carpenter's son? Isn't his mother's name Mary, and aren't his brothers James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas? Aren't all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? So it's kind of a strange story, especially with the setup that we gave. Uh, But let's see what we can learn. I want to start this morning by looking at some maps. So we are... We're in this place here where the story is taking place. So Jesus has just done... just gone through his parables. Reese, if you can throw up the next slide, that'd be great. Uh, And he's hanging out in this particular area right here on the Sea of Galilee. Now, uh, not everybody knows what 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 the Bible means when it talks about Jesus' hometown. I think most people, when they're thinking about Jesus' hometown, they're thinking of Nazareth, right? Right, Jesus of Nazareth. Now, Nazareth is a city that we want to think about because it is the city where he was probably raised as a child. We know that he lived there for a time uh, and that his family was from Nazareth there. So you can see that circled down there on the left. But as an adult, Jesus didn't live in Nazareth. He lived in a town called Capernaum, right? Actually, uh, I had... I, had, I, just got, I got to go to Capernaum not that long ago. Uh, and as soon as you walk up to the gates, what does it say, Tom? The city of Jesus, right? So Tom was in, was in Israel with me, so I called him out and he didn't even know it and I probably made him super uncomfortable. Sorry about that. Uh, but it says the, the home of Jesus. So Jesus spends his adult life in a town called Capernaum. 
Now, that matters for us because there, there are, so if we actually go to the next slide, the three significant cities in Jesus' life are Bethlehem, where he was born. We have Nazareth up there, and then we have Capernaum, which is on the north, north part of the Sea of Galilee. Now, we're going to be talking about Capernaum today. That's probably most likely where Jesus was in this place right now. The reason that matters is Capernaum is, called, is part of something known as the religious triangle. We've talked about that before. There are three cities on the north part of the Sea of Galilee there that are known as the Religious Triangle. And in those cities, it's interesting because they're not super big towns. They're, 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 they're good, decent towns. Um, but they have something that's really distinct in them. Um, if, you were to, if you go to Capernaum or you go to the... What you'll notice is that their houses are relatively small, but their synagogue is really, really big. Uh, and it's because there's a... Uh, Sorry, we got a tearful one back there. I want to make sure everything's okay. We good? All right. Got it. Um, Yeah. So um, so anyway, religious triangle, Capernaum, very big synagogue. They have a high focus on their religious practices. So for a town that's so small, they put their money where their mouth is and says, we want to be a place that's known for following God and for our religious practices. And so we have that there. So traveling from Nazareth to Capernaum is about 40 miles. It would be about a half day's journey in the first century, or I'm sorry, a day and a half's journey. Um, all of your towns in Israel are, are about 25 miles apart, which is if, or there are always 20, I'm sorry, there's always a town about 25 miles away because 25 miles was considered to be a day's journey. So Nazareth is about a day and a half from Capernaum, which means that there's, it's very likely that people in Nazareth would have interacted with people in Capernaum. So like we said, Jesus is raised in Nazareth, and so the people in that town knew him as a small child. They knew his siblings, they knew his family, uh, and, and, and they would have known everything about him. But Nazareth is not a very impressive town. Actually, when we were in Israel, um, we didn't go to Nazareth, which is the place you'd think you would. Um, we did get it pointed out the window going, hey guys, that's Nazareth over there? And you see like this little mound, and they're like, you saw it all, good, you're done. And so we kept going. Um, but it's not a very impressive town. It's really, really small. It actually would be, it would be considered to be an unimpressive town rel- relative to Capernaum itself. And so, again, the, I, don't even, I don't have any pictures from there because there really isn't anything there. But what we realized then is that they would have had to interact with a town like Capernaum. That was the point that I'm trying to make. So at the age of 30, Jesus leaves Nazareth and begins his ministry, making his residence in Capernaum. Uh, I do have pictures of Capernaum. I'm going to throw up that next one there. This is actually a picture of their synagogue. So if you were actually to see the rest of the city, this is by far the big centerpiece of that space. Um, Actually, when when it says that Jesus began preaching in their synagogues, that's it, which is pretty awesome. Um, Our our guide, as we were there, he said, "There's, there's, there's a lot of different places that we go where we think Jesus was probably somewhere around here, right? It's hard to know exactly where he walked. He goes, but this one is one of those spaces where you can say he actually stood on those stones right there, which was a pretty powerful moment. Um, because you realize that he taught in this synagogue often, and it looks like that, which um, for me at least was a really, really um, amazing moment. So in this space, Jesus begins his preaching. And he comes there, and I think, the, and it says again, when Jesus had finished these parables, he moved on from there, coming to his hometown, he began teaching the people in their synagogues. And we're amazed. 
Where did this man get his wisdom and these miraculous powers, they asked? Isn't he the carpenter's son? Isn't his mother's name Mary? And aren't his brothers James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas? Aren't all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all of these things? And they took offense at him. Now I want to spend a couple minutes when we realize what we're, that, we're, that we're anchored in this part of the world. I think the progression that we see here in this passage is really interesting. And it's also really important for us to understand what this passage is trying to teach us. So Jesus goes into the synagogue and people show up to hear him. Because as we've seen, if you read earlier in Matthew, over the past few months, Jesus has begun to gain a a reputation in the area. On the other side of the lake, crowds are following following him because he's teaching and he's healing and he's performing miracles. Now, if Capernaum is right on the Sea of Galilee, literally on the shores of the Sea of Galilee, and so if there's something happening on the other side of the lake, people in Capernaum would have known about it because the Sea of Galilee is not very big at all. Actually, Reese, can you throw up? There it is. This is a picture from the top, top of Mount Arbel, um, and that's the Sea of Galilee, right? It's not like Lake Michigan at all. If you're in your mind and you're thinking the Sea of Galilee is this big sea, it's a lake and not a humongous one either. So if you're in Capernaum on the shores here and something is happening on the other side, people, you may not know exactly what's happening, but you know something's going on. Things like that don't happen without their people taking notice. And so, especially as Jesus often teaches in boats and things like that, the people of Capernaum are aware of his fame, I suppose. And so Jesus comes to Capernaum and he begins teaching in their synagogue. And people show up to hear them. And what happens first? Anybody? They were amazed, right? So first they're amazed. He begins teaching and it says, the Bible says they were amazed, which is interesting, right? I think it's one of those lines that you can miss if you read it through too quickly. So it actually starts, when Jesus had finished these parables, he moved on from there. Coming to his hometown, he began teaching the people in their synagogue and they were amazed, which is an interesting progression, especially by the time we get to the end of that particular passage, See, the things, he was, he, the things that Jesus was teaching was compelling to the people at first. So we're, we're a long ways into Matthew at this particular point, so it's pretty easy for us to guess at what kinds of things he taught. Right, we've seen it in the Sermon on the Mount, so we saw a whole big set of teaching there. We can safely assume he would have taught things like that. We've seen it in the parables that he's taught over the last few weeks. We can safely assume he taught things like that. We don't know exactly what he preached, but we know it was in that ballpark. And so the people begin by being amazed. They hear his words and they say, there's something to this guy. There's something that he has to offer that is amazing to us. But then it turns, doesn't it? And it ends, the passage ends with them being offended by it. Why? How? Well, what happens when Jesus teaches those same teachings that we look through at the book of Matthew? Well, what happens when the Pharisees hear him? They get offended as well, right? They get really upset. Why? Well, because the things that Jesus teach, the things that Jesus is teaching, don't fit inside of their religious structures. Jesus is challenging what they understand to be right. That's why the Pharisees hate him. They have a system in place in which they have power, they have control, they know how things work, 
And often Jesus takes that system and flips it on his head. Do you remember where we are in Capernaum? We're part of the religious triangle, right? A place that prides itself on its religious practices. A place that prides itself on the big synagogues they build in a little dinky town. A place that prides itself for being known in the world as one of the three cities in the religious triangle. They are, they're, 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 it's a place where they have their religious house in order, or so they think. So I wonder, when Jesus is preaching, I wonder if in their ears the same thing that happens to the Pharisees happens to them. At first, Jesus' message is persuasive and compelling, which actually makes it way more dangerous to them, doesn't it? It's persuasive, it's compelling, it's moving something in them, but it's different from how they understood things to be. It's going to challenge the system that they've built and turn it over. It forces them to look at what they've been doing and where they put their resources and their energies, how they've been living their life, and it might mess it up a little bit. So what happens? Well, we can put ourselves in their shoes for just a minute, can't we? We show up to hear this guy speak, the guy who everyone in the region has been talking about, who, who is getting thousands of people from Greek cities to show up and listen to him speak. You've heard the stories, and so you go to see him. He begins teaching, and at first you get it. You're like, whoa, this guy's good. I understand why people follow him. He's got an authority that you haven't experienced before. We actually see people declare that all the time through the book of Matthew. He makes some good points. But the longer you listen, the more you realize that the points he's making start to hit a little close to home. They start to challenge things that you have been believe, that you've believed or thought or, or, or are part of the structure you've had for your whole life. Makes you, starts to make you really uncomfortable. Maybe you're a person who's donated a ton of money to make the big synagogue that we're sitting in. You're a good religious person who's got, who's got authority and who's got honor inside of the religious triangle, inside of this particular city. And so the more that he talks and presses on that system, the more ha what happens inside of you, the more uncomfortable you get. Because you're forced then to look at it. If he's right you're going to need to change some things. If he's right, some of the things that you believe to be true aren't or are different than what you expected them to be. And so what do you do inside your head? You begin to ask the question, is he right? If that's the question running through your head, it's not hard then to see what happens next. The system that you're comfortable with, the system that you know how it works and that you have power and authority in is being challenged. You wonder if he's right, and so all of a sudden you go, wait a minute, no, I know this kid, right? I remember him from when Mary and Joseph came from Nazareth. And oh, Nazareth is such a junky town, right? It's a little dinky town that's got nothing going on in there. He's got all his brothers and sisters that come, and they always run crazy around the city when they finally get here. No, this guy, he's just a normal guy. I know his mom and his dad. I know his brothers. I remember when he was little. Who is he to challenge the thing that we've known for so long? It's not hard to jump to that place, is it? To follow that progression all the way down. And so the admiration then shifts to offense. Now, it's easy for us to throw the people of Capernaum under the bus. 
how could they miss it? How could they miss Jesus in their midst? N.T. Wright actually has something to say about it. I actually had in my notes, N.T. Wright writes, but then that's an awkward way to say it, so I wanted to change it, but then went back to it anyway, so didn't really save anything there. But he writes it this way. He says, part of the whole point of the gospel is that Jesus wasn't an exception. He was and is one of us. And so, in the peop- so what we see here is we didn't see somebody glowing with a halo behind them. But these people were, ju- the people of Capernaum were just like us, and to them, Jesus was just a guy standing in front of them. Yeah, sure, he was saying compelling things, but he was just a normal guy in their eyes. He wasn't rich, he didn't come from an important town. He was just Mary and Joseph's kid, just like all the other kids. He's not the kind of person in their minds who gets to challenge a religious system. Things staying the way they are is in their best interest, so they miss Jesus. N.T. Wright continues, If new creation and new life are going forward, those who have invested heavily in the old creation or the old way of life are bound to be offended. See, the people of Jesus' hometown are one unwilling to hear or see the good news in the miracles or the teachings because they have a set narrative of who Jesus is already. They're stuck in the old, so they refuse to make way for the new. They know how the old works, and it's in their advantage. And so even in the face of something that's compelling, they're willing to default to their old narrative. And when we put it in that space, we realize that hits home for us too. Because how often do we get stuck in that same space? How easy is it for us to default back to the old narratives that we've told ourselves? How easy is it for us to justify not moving because we'd rather hold on to what we already know? Jesus gets that because he says to them next, he says, only in their own towns and their own homes are prophets without honor. And he did not do many miracles there because of the lack of their faith. I think this part of the story is really fascinating as well. They take offense to his teaching. And so Jesus stops doing miracles around them. He just stops doing it. Which, as I thought about it this week, is actually a strange reaction. At least I think so. If I thought I, if I knew that what I was teaching was right, and if I knew that I was trying to draw people closer to God, and they told me that I wasn't what I said I was, I don't think my reaction would be to stop doing things. I think it would be exactly the opposite, but to do more things, right? Oh, you don't really believe I am who I am? Let me do a bigger miracle, or a more, or a more flashy one, or let me teach you, or persuade you, or argue with you in a different way. I would kind of, I would ramp it up, not necessarily down. But Jesus is clearly, confidently, clearly and confidently in the right. Why, would he, why wouldn't he show them why they were wrong? See, that's how we do things. It's up and to the right. It's going to constantly be growing. A bigger impact, a flashier show. But Jesus doesn't do that. That's not how the kingdom works for him. See, for us, it's easy to have an idea on how religion is supposed to work. 
When you know Jesus, you're constantly supposed to be improving, getting better. Now, years ago, there was a movie, really popular movie that came out. Um, it was called Fireproof. You guys know that one? Now, I'm going to say bad things about it, so if you love it, I'm sorry. It's not entirely bad, but there's one part that bugs me a lot, and I'm gonna, I'll share that with you. In the movie, if you're not familiar with the movie, it's an older one, but in the movie, Kirk Cameron is the star, and uh, they set it up very early that he has two major vices that he's wrestling with. He's got an anger issue, so he can lose his temper very easily, and he's got a porn addiction, so both of those things are kind of his deal. Sorry, I know they're kids here, but that's, that's where he's going with that, right? Both of those things are issues for him. So how the story works is that they've caused tension in his marriage. So now him and his wife aren't getting along, and they're starting to pull further and further apart because of both of these particular vices. And you see that they're almost at their breaking point in the movie. And at that point, Kirk Cameron, and I actually forgot his character's name. I should have looked it up, but I don't. I didn't. So sorry, Kirk Cameron. You guys know who he is. At that point in the movie, he finds Jesus, which is great. Good for him. That's awesome. He finds Jesus and he begins to work really hard to change his life, to try to repair his marriage. Now, all of that is good and it's fine, but the part that really bugs me is that as he's working on all of these different things, he comes home, he's put a ton of effort in to kind of change the narrative of his life, and he gets home, and on the table, the divorce papers are sitting. You guys remember that part of the movie? At that exact same time, his computer has a little pop-up that's tempting him into his other vice, right? So both of his vices have just been triggered. And what does he do? He unplugs the computer and throws it away, which you're like, yay, go Kurt. But I'm also like, that's not real. It bugs me so much. Now, I truly do believe in miracles. I do. I think that there are people who can meet Jesus and change immediately. But my guess is in all of our experience, that's the exception, not the norm, Right? that it doesn't always work like that. What I would have loved to see in that particular scene, if he, if he wanted to get over one of his vices, then fine. Maybe he takes a bat and smashes the computer in his rage. I don't know, right? Then he still has that one trigger that he can't get over. Because if you're anything like, in my experience, in my own life, there are a lot of things that I would love for Jesus just to fix, just to take away and be gone forever that he would double down on his miracle and do something bigger or grander in my life to prove to me he is who he says he is. But it doesn't happen that way, does it? So often it doesn't. Now, again, I do truly believe in miracles, believe it can happen that way, but more often what happens instead, the much more common experience is to begin to feel conviction over the things in your life that aren't the way they ought to be. Now, clearly, I want to be really clear on this. Conviction and guilt are different things. So Jesus doesn't work through guilt. Guilt is, the, is a phrase that comes into you that says, you've screwed up, you've gone off track, and there's no way back. You've messed up too bad to ever be restored in relationships with God or with people around you. That's guilt. That's not how God works. Conviction feels similar, but is entirely different. Conviction says you're not on track, there's something here that's hurting you, so please come back. Come back to the life that's flourishing. So often, that's when we, when we have an experience with Jesus, it begins with conviction. Hey, Brent, there's something in your life that isn't the way it ought to be. So let's turn and start working it out. 
The normal experience of life with Jesus is conviction followed by hard work, followed by incremental change. True? Is that most of our experiences? So why do we bring that up? See, I think one of the ways that we can approach Jesus with preconceived ideas on what religion is and what God is supposed to be is around this particular idea. That Jesus isn't a magic, that the idea that Jesus is a magic solution to just fix everything in our life that's wrong. Now, again, we believe miracles exist, but, so, but most of Jesus' teaching is teaching people how to wrestle with God and asking them then to do the work, to, experience, to begin to experience the kingdom that's all around them. And that's why I'm glad that this particular week fell on Baptism Week. This is the week where we invite you to begin to pray over whether baptism is something you want to be a part of. Or to reflect on, if you've already been baptized, to reflect on that moment in your particular life. So often we can believe that baptism is the end of our journey, the place in which we commit to Jesus and then miraculously everything gets better. But it's not that. It was never meant to be that. Baptism is the start of a journey, not the end. Well, baptism is, when you, when you sign up for baptism, when you want, it's saying that from this point forward, I'm open to listening to the conviction that God's going to put in my life. I'm open to putting away the old things and walking into the new. But it also needs to come with the realization that when you follow Jesus, it's not always up and to the right Sometimes it's going to challenge things that you've believed for a really long time and force you to wrestle with things in a way that aren't pleasant or comfortable. Sometimes it's going to force you to restructure everything to actually experience the fullness in the kingdom that God desires for you. Last week we asked the question, are there areas in your life in which you're holding back from the, plant, the seeds of the kingdom being planted? And we'll allow that to follow through to to this week as well. Are there places in your life where you're not allowing the kingdom to make you uncomfortable, to challenge the the religious structure that you've built in your mind? Are there places in your life where you're just more comfortable with the old way, even if you know it's hurting you? So at the end of this passage, the people of Capernaum would prefer the old way because it's what they know, even if it's imperfect. And so as a result, Jesus doesn't perform miracles in that space. I think that speaks a lot into how we experience the kingdom here and now. See, God gives us the ability and the the autonomy to make the decision in our own life. Are we willing to let him actually come in? Are we actually willing to follow his teachings even if that means it's going to turn us inside out or upside down? If we are, he says the kingdom of heaven is all around you. But the inverse of that is also true. If we refuse to let the old things go, if we refuse to let ourselves be restructured in the way that Jesus teaches us, what happens? We don't experience the kingdom, right? Because what what are the miracles of Jesus? If you ever looked at them, they're, they're actually fascinating. What they are is a restoration of Eden. Look at the things that Jesus does. What happened when the fall happens, right? The relationship with God is broken while Jesus is there and present. The relationship with 
each other is different and he helps people restore relationships. Our relationship with the world around us is different. So now food is difficult and he feeds people. Now people get sick and he heals them. He restores things back to the way they ought to be. He helps people experience the kingdom all around them. When we refuse to let Jesus speak into our lives, we miss the kingdom. And so that's the challenge we have this morning. If you're thinking about baptism, you don't have to have it all figured out. It isn't going to be a magic moment in which everything is fixed. It's the beginning of a moment in which you say, today I want to follow and today I want to experience the kingdom that's all around me. If you've already been baptized, remember that that's the commitment you've made. But we also then realize that our journey in Jesus is not always up and to the right. There are moments in which he comes in and says, Brent, hey, the things that we've been doing for a long time need to change. The structure that you know or understand or think that if you're not listening to me, it's, it might get entirely upended and, 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 uh, and that might be really painful and difficult. So that's the challenge for us this morning. Similar to the challenge of last week. Are you willing, truthfully, to let go of the old Whatever that might be, maybe it's a structure that's been built into your life for a long time about how the world is supposed to work. Is it time to let that go? Maybe, like the town of Capernaum, it's something about how the church is supposed to work and it's time to let that go. Where are the areas in which you are locked into the old so you are missing the experiences of the kingdom moving forward? In the book of Matthew, over and over and over again, Jesus declares the kingdom way is the best way. And he desires for us all to step into it, but then over and over again he says, but it's not the easiest. And it's a phrase we've used over and over again here as well. If we're going to take the kingdom seriously, if we're going to actually engage with the teachings of Jesus that we find compelling, it may mess us up a little. And so are we willing to do that? Will you pray with me? Father God, I'm going to start by just asking for forgiveness in the areas in which we've desired for things to be the way we want them to be. Ways in which we've desired control or we've, where we've we fell in love with power or we've, where we just don't feel like dealing with changing a system that's, that's kind of worked for us for a while. God, we pray that you give us wisdom to show us those areas. God, we also pray you give us the courage to step into the difficulty of wrestling with, the, with those things. So often when we follow you, we do experience the flourishing that comes with the kingdom, but sometimes that requires hard work first that can be really painful. And so God, we pray you meet us in those moments as well. The moments in which we have to wrestle through deep hurt or pain or emotion that we've had, in the, had stewing inside us for a long time. Lord, it's in those moments we, where all we can do is lean into your promise that you are there with us and that you'll give us a peace that transcends our understanding. Lord, may we all take a step today towards that kind of kingdom life, away from the old, into the new. Amen.